information is powerful. And one of the key things that we need to keep in mind is that we need to understand how much harder it is for uh, Black people and people of color than it is for uh, white Americans. Uh, the same way we have to keep in mind that women um, have a much harder job advancing in their careers than men do. And so we could look at them as different different problems, but uh, with ultimately similar solutions. Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Rob Eigner here. I have an amazing pair, an amazing duo, uh, authors of several uh, successful and important books that I'm going to introduce to you in a moment. Um, So I'm very excited about this episode and how it really pertains to some of the important issues of the day. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guests, uh, communication and gender bias experts for more than 30 years. Andy Kramer and Al Harris have been helping women advance in their career through writing, speaking, and mentoring. They are co-authors of two award-winning books, Breaking Through Bias, which I've read, and It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias That Built It. Their writing on communication strategies has been featured in the Huffington Post, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and Forbes. Andy is also a co-founder of the Women's Leadership and Mentoring Alliance. Uh, and has been named by the National Law Review as one of the 50 most influential women lawyers in America uh, because of her power to change the legal landscape. Al Harris was a founding partner of a large Chicago law firm. Uh, He served in many leadership roles and has had extensive experience training, mentoring, and evaluating women as they move up the career ladder. I'm so proud to have you guys on the show. Welcome. How are you today? We're terrific. We're very pleased to be with you. I appreciate that. So, you know, there's a lot to talk about in about your book and about your work, but I want to start off with something, um, you know, since we scheduled this interview, uh, a, a very important and influential female attorney passed away, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm just curious, since her work is so in alignment and in tune with what you guys do and advocate for, I'm, I'm curious what your uh, reaction was to that sad event. Well, I'll I'll lead off with um, uh, it was it's a devastating loss for uh, not just her family, but for the United States and the legal system. Her story is very similar to the story that you focus on in your in your podcasts, because uh, she was the daughter of two immigrants and. Who would have thought that she would have made it to be a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, but what she confronted in her in her career is exactly the sorts of things that we're fighting against and still exist in many ways in the United States, where the fact that she was first in her class, uh, she still couldn't get a job because 
they didn't have spots for women. And although she's worked her whole life to do away with the legal barriers that allowed uh, employers to discriminate actively against women, uh, the implicit bias is still is still a problem. And that's really what we try to focus on in, in our work. One of the things that Justice Ginsburg's loss brings to mind is not just how important she has been to the advancement of women and other minorities, but how vulnerable and at risk those gains are that we're right at the cusp of a situation in which we may be poised to take a step backward, maybe even to take several steps backward. And that would be a terrible consequence of the loss of someone as important and as dedicated as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I hope that doesn't happen, but one has to be apprehensive at this moment. Yeah, I think a lot of us are. I certainly am too. And I I guess I have a question uh, before I dive into the content of your book around that. Aside from the obvious of voting and and being vocal, um, what else can we do? Uh, from your perspective, you know, as well-versed as you are on the subject, what, what else can we do, uh, uh, citizens like myself? Well, certainly now, before the, the Senate confirmation process, if you're in a state with a uh, senator who is up for re-election, you can voice your disapproval of any effort to move ahead with the nomination now. So that I do think that there are some vulnerable senators that may be persuadable that this is not the right move. That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is that we've come through very bad times before. And even if uh, one of Trump's nominees and the two that are most prominently suggested are truly... Would take us backwards. Would take us backwards. We have to maintain our confidence. We have to move positively. And we have to recognize that people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued before the court when it wasn't progressive. And it is still possible that the people that are there can be persuaded, can be convinced that stepping backward from her legacy is not the right thing to do. So I'm apprehensive, but I'm not, I'm not black. Well, I'm not curled up. I thought about curling up underneath my desk in the fetal position, but I decided that that wasn't going to be productive. So um, what we need to do is reach out to our, our senators. And um, uh, as you started with, everybody needs to get out there and vote. Um, I'm glad to hear from the two of you an iota of positivity, because I have to say, um, you know, the, the the last couple of weeks and with the passing of, of RBG, it's been um, been challenging. And so I'm glad to hear that you guys, you know, see some some positive outcomes uh, uh, still available to us. So let me dive into the book. You know, obviously, you know, you talk about both implicit and explicit bias uh, as a big you know component of this subject. So define for our audience in simple terms what those two things are. Well, starting with explicit bias, explicit bias is intentional 
I don't like people with purple hair and I discriminate against them. I don't include them. I don't um, hire them. Uh, and um, uh, that's really what explicit bias is all about. It's not just not hiring them. It is making open derogatory comments about people who are different. Uh, it is racist comments. It is misogynistic comments. It is disparaging comments about Muslims or Mexican immigrants. Uh, that's the open, flagrant, unapologetic exposure of one's prejudice. And implicit bias is the unconscious, I'm a good person and I, I don't have a, a racist or a or a sexist bone in my body, but then I behave in ways that uh, don't play that out, where I think that a woman, because she's a mother, is somehow less committed to her job than she would be if she wasn't a mother, uh, things like that. And so the explicit and the implicit bias, uh, sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. And so ultimately, explicit bias is, is prevented by various statutes uh, if you've got the, the stomach and the inclination to fight uh, against it. Uh, but implicit bias is, is really insidious because uh, it's something that we can't uh, pinpoint and can't uh, fight against in many, in many cases. So it's, it's a lot harder to manage. It's a lot harder to, to contain and deal with because you can't see it. Right. That's right. And we have to recognize that implicit bias, having implicit biases, doesn't mean that you're a bad person. We all have biases because we all have stereotypes. We all have baggage that we brought with us from our childhood that, even if we're not aware of it, preconditions us to have certain expectations as to the capacities or abilities of, other of certain other people because they fall into particular groups. Uh, so do, you, do you think, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but let me ask, uh, do you feel like the two of you, the author of this book, are you also uh, clouded by implicit bias, particularly as it relates to women in the workplace? Well, I hope not clouded, but it would be presumptuous to say that we don't have those unconscious biases ourselves, but we are on guard. We are doing many things to make certain, not that we don't have those biases, but that we don't allow them to influence our decision. Perhaps I could give you a, an example of why I'm aware of my own biases. When I started my law firm, it was me and three other guys who were all just terrific. We were not in any way biased. We were going to build the best, most discriminatory free law firm uh, that the United States had ever seen. And lo and behold, I looked around some 25, 30 years later, and I realized that we hadn't done any better a job at bringing women up into senior leadership than anyone else. And that's when I recognized that something more 
than simply patting ourselves on the back had to be at work. That we had to recognize that all of us, even us good people, are influenced subtly by implicit bias, by the stereotypes that drive our decisions without our even knowing it. Would you, would you say that that sentiment that you just shared, and I really appreciate you, you know, acknowledging, you know, where you had to look at yourself, uh, is this sort of in alignment with the, the current conversation we're having about not just being uh, a non-racist, but being an anti-racist, right? Like being actively engaged in the anti-racism cause. It, it, absolutely. It's ultimately the, the same, uh, it's the same problems with a different spin. And uh, what we need to do is we need to, uh, we need to actually follow the same sorts of steps that Al and I recommend, which is um, making sure that the policies and procedures of the organizations uh, don't allow for subjective uh, discriminatory uh, decisions to influence other people's careers. And so with the anti-racist and the, the, the racial elements to it, information is powerful. And one of the key things that we need to keep in mind is that we need to understand how much harder it is for uh, Black people and people of color than it is for uh, white Americans. Uh, the same way we have to keep in mind that women um, have a much harder job advancing in their careers than men do. And so we could look at them as different different problems, but uh, with ultimately similar solutions. So that, so that brings me to some of the basic uh, statistics that you share early on in the book. Uh, so I'll, just, I'll share some of them, and you can certainly uh, add on because I'm sure you have a, 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 an encyclopedia of information in your minds. But uh, 38% of first-tier managers in the, in the United States are female, yet only 9.5% of the top earners in corporate America are, are female. So what are we doing wrong? What's What's happening here? Well, what's happening is that we are making it harder for those women who start out equal with men to move up. Now, we make it harder for them in all kinds of ways. We make it harder by propagating cultures that are dominated by male values, expectations, and norms. By that, I mean that most businesses are operated as though there were two spheres of one's life, a public sphere, which is the office, uh, a domestic sphere, which is home, and that those can be kept separate, that they are entirely non-intersecting parts of one's life. Yet for women, for almost all women, that isn't true. And so the workplace becomes a conflict zone for women in ways that it is not for men. So are you referring specifically to the fact that, you know, women are birthing children? Is that where you're referring to? Like that's the biggest challenge? It's not just the fact that women are the ones who, who bear the children. 
we need to look at the stereotypes and biases that influence uh, relationships at home. Uh, I'll give you an example, which is that uh, the New York Times had an interesting survey where they asked who's working the hardest to help the kids homeschool. And more than 50% of the fathers said that they had taken on the bulk of the homeschooling obligations while the kids were, um, you know, working Zoom or online or whatever. And only 3% of the women said that the fathers had taken on that responsibility. So we have a delta there of 50, you know, 50 points. I mean, think about it for a minute. So what we do is we have a culture where the women are expected to be the ones that take the burden of the home, home care and whatnot. And um, there's a pressure put on them. Uh, that they need to be doing that as well as performing in the office in a way that men don't. And it's not just with respect to children. Women, whether they have children or not, if they're married, they are expected in virtually all cases to take on the great majority of household responsibilities, the cooking, the cleaning, the shopping, the organizing, the bill paying. And that added responsibility that is not being shared puts an additional pressure on women's careers so that there are multiple reasons that women find it harder to advance than men do. So let me, let me um, ask a question there. Obviously there's a certain awareness that, um, that, you know, will help in that, right? So like if I, as a married man with children, if I'm listening to you or reading your book and I'm saying like, wow, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go grocery shopping and I'm going to, I'm going to cook some of the meals and I'm going to handle some of the traditionally uh, uh, female responsibilities to, to equalize things in the household. Like that's great, but what can happen in the workplace or from a legal perspective to undo some of this, uh, implicit bias that you're talking about? Well, basically, um, there's three trains leaving the station. Uh, one train is what women can do with their own careers in gender-biased workplaces. And that's really what we try to focus on in Breaking Through Bias, uh, which is we're not going to wait. We can't wait until the world becomes perfect because none of the women who are working today are going to be working when the world is perfect, most likely. Um, the second train that's leaving the station is what men need to do and what men need to do in order to um, support and advance the careers of their women colleagues. And then that third train is really what organizations need to do. And that's really where the policies and procedures play in. And so uh, there's really those three different things going on. We can try to make change at the organizational level. We can try to encourage men to be more supportive and um, collaborative with their women colleagues and with their um, wives or significant others. But today, right now, women can try to deal with the gendered workplaces by adopting communication techniques that allow them to 
um, overcome or avoid gender bias. So, so drill down on that, um, the communication techniques, what does that look like? What, what do, what do people have to have a greater awareness of, or what tools do they need to develop to be able to communicate in a way that's going to help minimize this, uh, this gender bias? We divided the world up into two different universes where um, the first one is conversations with yourself, the sorts of conversations that we all need to have, uh, but women in particular, focusing on them in the workplace, is conversations about confidence and grit and having a positive mindset and a coping sense of humor. Because if we can't smile at some of the wacky things that go on in our lives, um, it's going to beat us down in a way that uh, is very hard to um, uh, pull ourselves back up. And then the second part is conversations with other people. And here, the focus is really on verbal, nonverbal, and written communication skills, which is if I'm talking to you, and it's clear to me that you are not listening to me, you're listening, but you're not hearing me, that going forward and saying the same thing over and over again is not going to make you hear me any better. I need to understand myself and what's going on with you to figure out how I may modify or change the way I'm saying something to make my point and to get through to you. So can you give me an example of either of you of how someone would pivot that? So, you know, a a woman is in the workplace. She's trying to communicate um, an area where she's feeling maybe unfairly treated, she's communicating that it's not landing, it's not being heard. What's a, give me a stereotypical kind of pivot to that conversation. Well, one of the things is, first of all, why isn't she being heard? What is it that is not getting through? But let's suppose that it's simply that, that there are stereotypes at work that are putting her down that are viewing her by the people that she's dealing with as not being as competent, not being as forceful, not being as competitive as the men, and therefore that she can be disregarded, uh, that she doesn't have to be taken seriously. Well, what does she have to do? She has to find ways that she can impress the people that she is dealing with, that yes, in fact, she is someone that needs to be taken seriously. How does she do that? Well, one of the things that she needs to do is use body posture. She can present herself as strong and in control and as a person of presence. So, the first thing she does is that she may need to change her posture. She may need to stand taller. She may need to uncross her legs. She may need to not uh, gesture towards herself, but to gesture away from herself. So she needs to present herself as a person of power and capacity. The second thing is that she needs to present her ideas in an attractive, warm, but engaging way. And there are, and we include many suggested verbal techniques that will allow her to get through. So 
with the combination of verbal and nonverbal behavior, she can often change the way that she is being perceived by the people with whom she's dealing. We call that the Goldilocks dilemma, which is that if a woman is too nice and kind and sweet, then they discount her as being incompetent. But if she's, you do this and you do that, and we're meeting at five o'clock to talk about it, everybody's hair catches fire. Who does she think she is? So a woman needs to balance the too hard and the too soft to come out with a just right, which we acknowledge is not fair. And um, it's not something that men have to deal with as well, but it still allows women to get ahead in their careers and allows them to um, maintain their authenticity because they're working towards a particular goal or objective and whatever they pulled out of their closet that morning is not really who they are. And so you have different characteristics that you can dip into uh, to communicate. And that's really what we try to focus on. Well, and clearly, uh, as I'm listening to this, if, if, if I didn't know we were talking specifically about, you know, gender bias, like this would be applicable to healthy marriages, healthy work relationships, health, just healthy relationships in general. So I really appreciate that. So as you were talking, it made me wonder how often in your research did you see woman on woman bias? That has to occur. Well, when we, um, that's really what prompted our second book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, because women hold the same stereotypes and biases about other women, men, leaders, families that uh, men do. And so when we started to talk about these issues, a young woman, the very first time, it's happened over and over again, but the very first time a woman said, I get along fine with the guys, but I hate working with other women. And I never had that experience. And so I said, can you uh, explain to me what, what you mean? And she said, well, the women are bitches and the men are great. And I went to the boss of the women and I said, I'm not working with them. And he said, fine, you don't have to. So now I just work with the guys and my job's great. So I said to her, well, that's really very interesting. Can you tell me how the women treated you differently from the men? And she couldn't do it. There was no difference. The women wanted their projects done the same way the men wanted their projects done. And she looked up and she said, no differently. They treated me exactly the same way and I trashed their careers. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is that there's all sorts of issues about women working with other women that are stereotype driven. So that women expect other women very often to be nice and kind and sweet. They don't. Ex they expect them to be like their sister or their mother. They don't expect them to be their boss. And so, when women act in a straightforward, business-like, direct way, they are often viewed by other women as unkind or bitches. Uh, that's only one example. Uh, we think that. In that workplace, in the gendered workplace that I talked about with masculine norms, values, and expectations, women very often feel that the only way they can get ahead is by identifying with the men and distancing themselves from other women. And that causes another rift between women in the workplace. And yet a third 
is that women often feel as though women are disparaged systematically, and therefore the only way they can get ahead is to differentiate themselves from the other women. It's, I don't want to be like those losers. And so there are all sorts of dynamics that create hostilities between women. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't some nasty women, just like there's some nasty men. But by and large, what our researchers show is that the problems that women have in working with other women, and there are many, are caused not because women are inherently mean or nasty or aggressive towards other women, but because the dynamics of their workplace forces them into competition or antagonism with the other women. So there, there really, there's a higher expectation in a way for, in the, for the most part, for women to advance to a high level because they're not only having to perform and generate the result, but then they have to kind of maybe stand out or communicate in a different way than other women to, to, to make progress. Is that kind of summarize? Absolutely. Yes, you've got it. Very That's well part said. Of it. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions that comes up for me as I'm listening to you is, you know, we talk a lot in our society about, you know, the pendulum swinging one way or another. Oh, you know, the court's extremely liberal. It's going to swing to be more conservative or the Senate or the House or whatever, you know, that there's a swing. How far does the pendulum need to swing as it relates to this? Like, so on the one hand, it's like, yes, we want it to be equal, but uh, is is there a, does it have to go beyond equal and be a, a female dominated uh, executive world in the business world for, for, for people like you to feel like we we've achieved a, a, a there. Well, I'm going to respond to that with two points. The first point is that um, if that's the case, we got a hell of a long time to wait because since the sixties through the mid nineties, women advanced dramatically. And since the mid nineties, the um, women in senior leadership has flattened out and there's been basically minimal improvement. But so, let, me, let me interrupt you on a question. I want to ask you a question about that. Sure, Is, sure. Um, do you feel that that stoppage or slowing down of improvement for women, has that been because of the workplace or like what percentage of it is the workplace as opposed to choices made by women in terms of where they want to take their career? Well, there's a lot of popular press that say that this is women's choices, that women would rather be at home with their children, that women don't want the same kind of competitive environment that men do, that women are not as ambitious as men. Well, we know from the statistics that none of those reasons are true. What happens is that we see that women enter the workplace, enter careers, with the same degree of ambition, uh, sense of promise ahead of them, the same uh, the same sense that they can conquer the world that the men do. And lo and behold, it only takes about two years before there's a major differentiation between the women and the men. By two years after they enter their careers, the men remain just as enthusiastic about their possibilities as they were at the beginning. And the women's uh, ambition, uh, sense of promise has dropped by over half. And so 
It isn't that women are making choices. Since the 1990s, it isn't that women have recognized that their true calling is at home. It is that the workplace has uh, coalesced around masculine norms, values, and expectations, and made it harder for women. It is as though our businesses have said, enough's enough. We've got women now, we're hiring women, and they can just make it on their own, or we're going to stop. We have no concern for them. So I don't think it's the women. I think it's the workplace. Anything you want to add to that? Well, I I, I agree completely. Um, and so because we haven't seen the improvement, I would go to my second point in response to your question, which is that the pendulum was swinging back since the 1990s. And so maybe it's time for the pendulum to swing back the other way towards women. But the research, our research shows, uh, and there's a lot of social science research, which indicates that you need a critical mass of women in senior leadership roles in order to provide the support, the mentorship, the belief in a, in a future that young women starting their careers need. And so you really need to have much more women in senior leadership in order to increase the, the flow of the junior women through the pipelines. So you guys uh, made a choice to write a book. And that's not an easy choice. I mean, I, I contemplated myself writing a book and here I am uh, having doing, doing a podcast now instead because I thought writing a book was pretty hard and the podcast is a little bit easier. So you made that choice. I'm curious uh, what went into making that decision. And then also, uh, whichever order you guys want to answer this, has there been backlash for having written this book, particularly, uh, Al, for you as a man? Well, I'll start with why did we write the book in the the first book in the first place? Why did we then write the second book and then the second edition to that first book? Uh, Because what I had found in my career was that I had never been held back. And I started my career where they couldn't have cared if you were purple polka dotted. If you did a good job, everybody wanted me on their projects. Uh, And then I joined a big firm. And there, because people don't know you, the stereotypes and the biases would kick in. And when I served on our compensation committee, what I found was that the men would write glowing self-evaluations about how they're total rock stars. And the women would write very modest, self-deprecating reviews about the team that they worked on. And so um, that prompted me to start writing about, speaking about the rules of gender communication and how in the workplace women need to understand these issues. And so uh, it became clear that I wanted a larger platform for that. And Al and I have collaborated for decades on professional things as well as, you know, life generally, we're we're married to each other. And um, I asked him, I said, I want to write this book, but I know I can't write it without you. Would you write it with me? You asked about backlash. I don't think I've experienced backlash. What I have experienced and what is the hardest thing for me to continue to cope with 
is not being able to get through to my uh, male counterparts. The hardest thing in this whole area is to get senior men to recognize how much harder it is for women to get ahead than it is for men. Most senior men in leadership positions in major organizations are convinced that their organizations are meritocracies, that they are not in any way biased, that there are no restraints placed on women getting ahead, and therefore that they don't need to do anything. And for me as a man to try to get through to them to point out how many ways these implicit stereotypes and biases are holding women back, to try to get through to them that changes can be made in their organization that will not affect their productivity or profitability uh, is very hard. And it has been far more discouraging to me uh, than I anticipated it would be because it's far harder. When I say discouraging, it doesn't mean that I've stopped it or that I've slowed down or that I've uh, rethought the importance of it. It just means that it is much tougher than I anticipated. Uh, and I shouldn't have known as I looked around at just, at, let's say, the racial issue uh, to recognize how long people have been fighting against racism and how little progress has been made. I should have recognized that it was not going to be easy to make progress on the gender issue either. Well, I, I uh, appreciate both of your choices to fight that important fight, because I think uh, I think while yours, uh, your topic is gender specific, I think it informs us on all kinds of related challenges that we have in our society. So. Kind of as a as a wrap up sort of question, what what's that what's the outcome you guys want to see? Like let's look let's flash forward, you know, five years from now, and let's say a very satisfactory amount of progress has been made as it relates to your theme and your effort. What would you wish that to look like? What would be a reasonable but uh, exciting amount of progress? Well, let's say that instead of one woman in senior leadership, a third of the senior leadership teams could be women, that women would serve as CEOs of major corporations, that they would serve as directors on important boards of directors, uh, that uh, women would understand the, the difficulties that other women have in the workplace and the interactions so that women would be um, uh, working shoulder to shoulder and not be uh, divided and at odds with each other the way they can be. Um, and that we would have men involved in the discussions and supporting the change and organizations, in fact, having policies and procedures in place that would allow for uh, the success of anybody without regard to their gender or uh, racial, ethnic, where did you go to school, do you like to eat broccoli? I think that Andy's right on the money, but I think in order to get there, what I'd like to see happen over the next five years is that 
corporations, professional organizations, recognize that the efforts that are being made now at increasing gender diversity, that our, our, our business community is spending literally billions of dollars a year on anti-bias training and uh, diversity and inclusion efforts. I'm hoping that they recognize that they got to start doing something different, that what they've been doing isn't working, that in order to accomplish what Andy was talking about, we need a new approach. We need a new way of tackling gender bias. And that new approach involves not telling people not to be biased, but it involves finding ways to interrupt biases from affecting career affecting decisions. I love that. That's very well put. And I appreciate that. And I, I really, again, appreciate what you guys are doing. And the, the book is poignant. Uh, I'm going to end with a quote, but I, I just want to remind the audience. So the book is Breaking Through Bias. I'm looking at the second edition. The authors are Andrea Kramer and Alton B. Harris. Uh, tell them where they can find the book, guys. Any one of the um, your favorite retailer, whether it's online or or your local bookstore, uh, you can get it. Uh, it's obviously available on Amazon, and um, we very much hope that um, uh, your listeners please check out the books and uh, let us know what you think about it. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, our website is Andy A N D I E and Al. A-N-D-A-L dot com. Uh, on that, you'll find a description of the book, links to buy it, uh, a number of our blog posts, and information about our speaking and uh, press about us. So that's the way to communicate and engage with us. And we hope your listeners will use that opportunity because we'd love to hear from as many as possible. Absolutely. And that'll also be in the show notes as well. So I'm going to end with a, a quote uh, because you guys are a married couple and uh, and because we have spent a little bit of time talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I have a quote for from her that I think you guys will find uh, uh, interesting and humorous. It says, if you have a caring life partner, you help the other person when that person needs it. I had a life partner who thought my work was as important as his. And I think that made all the difference for me. Absolutely. And um, in uh, what I know about her relationship with Marty Ginsburg, um, it was a very special relationship. And I'm pleased to say that I have a similar relationship with Al. So it's uh, uh, unfortunately, they're few and far between. We need to change that as well. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much. You've been wonderful guests. Uh, and I, I hope uh, other people take a look at your book. It's powerful and important work. This is Rob Eigner. This has been another episode of Clear Choices. Please contact me at clearchoices.live if you're interested in being a guest or uh, in any of the coaching programs that I offer. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, 
leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.